All right. The worst thing that can happen when you're teaching is a disruption in what you're doing because it's hard enough for people to remember from Sunday to Sunday. It's hard enough um, if you teach just, you know, normal school, any subject. Um, if, if you interrupt that teaching for any, any period of time, even for a holiday or anything, when the kids come back the next time and you ask them a question, they don't remember, they don't remember anything. Uh, same thing happens in the church. So um, I, know we had, I know we had started our study in the tabernacle. And then because of world events with Israel and Gaza, we, I, I felt like we had to deal with Ezekiel 37, 38, 39. I know we didn't get to 39, but I think we answered a lot of the major issues. And I think we dealt with when people are running around claiming Ezekiel 37, 38. I think we did a pretty good job demonstrating just observationally that many of those claims and grabs of the text are just far-fetched and just very much misrepresenting what's there. We will get to 39. But I didn't want to delay any longer getting back to the tabernacle. So we're going to go back to the tabernacle. So if you have a Bible, go to Exodus 25 to start off with. Because even though we didn't really pick a key verse or a theme verse, this one became kind of a key verse and a theme verse. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. I doubt you remember what it says. But Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, we read these words, And let them make me... That's God speaking. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So that's kind of become our key verse, whether whether intentional or unintentional. That's just kind of what happens. Exodus 25, 8. Now let's remind ourselves quickly of what we have done. We started off by discussing typology. And why did we start by discussing typology? Is because many say that the tabernacle is like the master class of typology, right? And we dealt with all of the pros and cons of that, correct? And one of the cons of that is once you start saying, this is a type of this, or this is a type of that, or this is a type of that, unless you place some rules, unless you place some guardrails, unless you play, place some rumble strips on the side of the road, things can, anything can turn into anything. Right? And this can turn into this, this can turn into this, this can turn into this. And we have to, you got to put something down to stop it. Right? Next thing you know, Israel's not Israel. Land is not land. This is the church when you don't know that nobody at the time would have known what you're talking about. This is this, this is that. So we put forth at least a hypothesis that says if something is a type, what must we find to prove and to demonstrate it's a type? We got to find the antitype found where? It must be in the New Testament and it must state it. Now, I know that ruins everyone's fun. I know that destroys a lot of preaching and a lot of sermons. But if we don't put those guidelines, it just becomes a free for all. It just becomes an absolute. I mean, next thing you know, you're reading a text in Isaiah and it's about 9 11. It's about America. I mean, I won't get into that book, The Harbinger. We won't go into all of that. Next thing you know, it represents this and this and this and this. And it's just. Like someone's got to say stop. Now, so what we're doing is we, everyone knows and everyone preaches that the tabernacle is this beautiful typology of this and this and this and this and this and this. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to demand of every text that we find something in the New Testament that can kind of demonstrate it. At the same time, are we going to ignore all of the claims of typology? No, we're going to try to look at them and see how they came to a conclusion, and then we'll kind of test it as a hypothesis. I think it'll be fun. 
how far we go, how in-depth we get, I don't know. But it'll be a challenge in hermeneutics. It'll be a challenge and in biblical interpretation. And it will be beneficial. So we... Well, we're going to use all kinds of stuff. We're going to use all kinds of stuff, right? I got, I got uh, Wilmington's Guide right here. I got uh, a book on the tabernacle here that I'll be using tonight. I mean, any, anything at any point, if I want to grab something, I'm just going to grab it at any point. I, there's just, I'm going to have no rhyme or reason. I'm just going to be like, what does that say? Okay, if you've got a study Bible, I'm gonna, if they say this represents this, I'm going to be like, what? okay, let's, let's, ch- let's test it. All right, so... We talked about uh, typology. Then we took, a, I think, a very interesting turn. And the reason we took this turn is, I believe, because the text demanded it. All right? Because when we're reading in Exodus, we start in a specific section that seems to start giving us the instructions of the tabernacle. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of those instructions, we have two chapters that seem to be what? completely out of place. And we're like, what happened? And everyone seems to admit that if we remove those two chapters, you can go basically from 25 to 40 with an uninterrupted instruction about the tabernacle. But these two chapters get in the way. What two chapters were that? Where are we referring to? Does anybody remember? We spent about five hours on it. Okay, well, that's a good excuse for me. 32 to 34, right? Everybody remember that? Okay. Remember those chapters if they were removed? I said two chapters, but you get the Basically, you know, you got 32 to 34. We could argue, you know, if we want to put 34 there. But we looked at all those chapters, did we not? And what did we refer to this as? A perpetual parenthesis. Where did we get the perpetual from? No. Nobody remembers what perpetual referred to? Perpetual referred to idolatry, right? Because the human heart is a perpetual idol factor. A quote from Calvin, right? I mean, I'm paraphrasing Calvin, right? Everybody remember that? Idolatry in idolatry is a perpetual problem. Was it a problem for Israel? Was it a problem for the early church? Was it a problem for you? Was it a problem for me? Because the human and, and I argued that the real idol. Remember, they typically Calvin viewed it that the human heart is the factory that produces idolatry. I changed it. I made a different argument. The perpetual idol is is us. Right, it's us, right? The heart itself is an idol because basically the heart says what? Worship self and that all those other idols we go get are really to do what? To serve the real idol, which is us, okay? So there's the perpetual problem. In Exodus 32 to 34, what problem does it address? Idolatry, of whom? Of Israel, right? Of Israel, everybody remember this? Okay, everybody remember, okay. And there was a lot of issues. From within those chapters, I tried to find the things that would somehow provide a solution. So we had a perpetual parenthesis. The parenthesis is 32 through 40. And within that, did we not pull out all of these things that are needed to address idolatry? 
Because the question is, how can God dwell in the midst of idolatrous people? And what things did we pull out? Sarah, do you remember any of them? Or at least do you have them written down? We need a mediator, an advocate, intercessor, propitiation for our sins, and atonement, right? And there has to be a judgment. We talked about, there was a bunch of things we talked about, but those are the main ones, right? And what did I make, what was my hypothesis about this happening in between or right in the middle of instructions about the tabernacle? What was my hypothesis? Anybody remember? It was the main point we made in five hours. My whole point was it happens in the parentheses because it has to do somehow. It's pointing to what? The tabernacle. There's got to be a reason textually this is inserted in the instruction. And so I made the argument that somehow all of those things we just talked about, a mediator, an advocate, a propitiation, all of those things show up in some way, shape, or form where? In the tabernacle. And so the tabernacle provides a problem to the perpetual issue of idolatry so that God may dwell in Maxa because somehow he finds a way to dwell amongst the people that at least at periods of time he wanted to do what with? He wanted to wipe them off the face of the earth. But somehow, he's able to build a tabernacle. In fact, what, what was the key verse I gave us right at the beginning of this hour? 25.8, build a sanctuary so that I may dwell. But how are you going to dwell among them when they have a perpetual problem, which is idolatry? So I made the argument that somehow the tabernacle has to present all of these solutions to the perpetual problem. Was, remember, that was my hypothesis. So, now that means not even so much in a typology. It had to literally present these issues. It had to literally present these solutions. Does that make sense? And if it literally presents those solutions, then we could argue if the tabernacle went away, then whatever solution it presented was what? Temporary. And so we were going to need a Permanent solution. So therefore, we can make somewhat of an argument that the solutions the tabernacle presented to the people in a temporary basis had a point to someone who would present it in a permanent. And when we read of Jesus, we say that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that Greek word means to tabernacle among us. So that at least gets us going in the direction. There's got to be something with the tabernacle where it presented real solutions pointing to the ultimate solution, which ultimately points to Christ. I think, and the reason I spent all of those hours doing that was to demonstrate a textual basis for looking beyond just everything. Now, does that mean then if it says a part of the tabernacle was seven feet long and it was made of purple, that that represents something? No, that does no way, shape, or form mean that. It just means that those solutions to the perpetual problem that was presented in the tabernacle, those can point to Christ. That's a radically different approach to typology because what am I doing there? I'm limiting it. I'm trying to control it. 
That's why we spent all of that time. Now, I can come in here tonight and go, let's do it. Let's go directly to the building of the tabernacle, and we could just start working through it. But to ease ourselves back into it, because I knew y'all were not going to remember a whole bunch of stuff, right? To ease our way back into it. So that if we do this Wednesday, hopefully by Sunday you'll still remember tonight, right? That's not too long, correct? That's, that's a couple of days, okay? Hopefully. What we'll do tonight is we're going to simply look at a book that gives us some reasons why they think the study of the tabernacle is important. We will consider each point they make as a hypothesis. We may agree or disagree. And then on Sunday, we can start the construction of the tabernacle. We can start with some of the basic elements, and, and that'll be a very just tedious and very academic, but we at least want to understand what it looks like, and some of the basic elements of it. Does that make sense? So everybody okay with doing that tonight? All right, that was 18 minutes of review. Now let's jump in, okay? Let me open up the book. All right, I'm reading a book called The Portrait of Christ. A Portrait of Christ. A Portrait of Christ. And in their very first chapter is the importance of the tabernacle. The importance of the tabernacle. And they give a number of reasons why they say the tabernacle is important, why it's important to study, right? Everybody okay with that? All right, number one, according to this book, A Portrait of Christ. Number one, the importance of the tabernacle is this. The tabernacle's importance is evident by the amount of space it occupies in God's word. They're saying the first thing that proves that the tabernacle is of great importance is because of the mere amount of space that is taken up in the Bible about the tabernacle. Now, we talked about this at the very beginning of our study, and there's lots of pros and cons to this, but let me read you how they break this down. The, the, whereas the record of the creation of the universe takes up basically two chapters of the Bible, the fall of man takes up one chapter. The tabernacle, its priesthood, and its offerings take up 50 chapters in the Bible. They break it down this way. 13 chapters in Exodus. 18 in Leviticus. 13 in Numbers. 2 in Deuteronomy. 4 in Hebrews. This is how they break it down. Let me go through those again. How many total chapters in the Bible? 50. How many in Exodus? 13. How many in Leviticus? 18. How many in Numbers? 13. How many in Deuteronomy? 2. How many in Hebrews? 4. Right? Now, I don't know what, that, what you think about that. I don't know how, what that makes you do. That irritates me to no end. That's the most irritating, aggravating thing I think I could read in a long time. We in the American church, we can't even agree on the word repentance. If I need 50 chapters, I need 50 chapters on the word repentance. Can the church agree on baptism? No. I wish we had 50 chapters on baptism. Can we agree on salvation? No. I wish we had 50 chapters on that. Can, I mean, do people, look at how bad the church messes up the Trinity. Pastors who say they believe in the Trinity will immediately start referring to the Trinity in what way? A modalistic or, some, or using Symbalianism. And guess what? 
If we, do we have 50 chapters that deal with the Trinity? Not in any uh, comprehensive way, right? Don't you wish there were 50? There, I mean, there's millions of things we wish there were 50 chapters on. But the tabernacle? That's, that's the most scary thing. I mean, that irritates me to no end. That just really does. Other people may think, oh, that's beautiful. There's nothing beautiful about it. When I need 50 chapters fixing, I don't know, the thing that has divided Christianity for 2,000 years. I mean, nobody can agree. Nobody can agree on salvation. Nobody can, nobody, literally, there's just disagreements over everything. Now, you could argue if we had 50 chapters on all those other things, we may have even more disagreement. But you would at least hope that with the more information, the greater chance we could come to some understanding. But 50 chapters... So on one hand, that's irritating to me. On the other hand, it presents a major challenge. How do you teach 50 chapters of information about a tent? What am I supposed to do with that? Now you can see why typology is where everybody would run to, right? Because if I can say, this represents this, and this represents this, and this represents this, and this represents this, that turns that teaching into what? Something cool, something interesting, something fun. Something that the people in the pew will go like, I never thought of that or saw that. And there may be a reason. Okay, There may be a reason, because maybe it never existed. But that, I digress. So it presents a challenge, though, because I don't know what you do. Do you just go through every single verse and look at every single verse about the tabernacle? That sounds horrible. So what typically they do is you grab the basic concepts and you just say, this picture is this, this picture is this. See the cross-references that I give you. Everybody's like, oh, wow. And then everybody walks away going, I'm an expert on the tabernacle. So um, I don't know what we do. I, I, I haven't quite figured out how we're going to approach it. But we're going to do our very best. All right? But at the same time, when you see 50 chapters dedicated to something, as a good Bible student, what should that tell you? I think that tells you it's important. I think that tells you it's very important. I'll never understand why there's 50 chapters. I'll never understand it. I, I, don't, I don't think even if God gave me a reason, I don't know if I would understand. I'm like, I still don't get it. 50 chapters? Let me tell you what we need 50 chapters on, right? There's a lot of things I need 50 chapters on. I mean, just think of all the controversies in, the, in Christianity. Do Christians agree on divorce and remarriage? No. Do we have 50 chapters on the subject? Not even close. Not even close. I mean, I can go on and 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 on. It's do we agree on the Lord's Supper? No. Are there 50 chapters on it? No, I like it's just maddening to me that there's 50 chapters dedicated to a tent. Right? So that's number one. The tabernacle is important as evidenced by the amount of space it occupies in God's word. Uh, they, they go on to add, it is sad that this important part of the Bible tends to be neglected. Well, I do think, we could argue, is it neglected? Is it not neglected? I don't know. I don't think it's ever completely neglected. I think people make reference to it. I think it's neglected in actually dealing with all 50 chapters. Right? Because you just go for the big things. You go for the big things and say, this represents this, this represents this. And everybody's like, ooh, that's really cool. 
Right, and, and, and if you have a multimedia program, you show some pictures of it, and everybody's like, ooh, that's really cool, and everybody thinks it's awesome, and then you just move on. If you got a cool video, you do that, everybody thinks it's really cool, and then, you know, everybody, everybody thinks that they walk away, that they know the tabernacle. And when they start talking about, like, well, this represents this, and this represents this, and this represents this, as if they're some kind of expert. You know why they think they're an expert? Because I heard a couple of sermons on it. Okay, which is one of the issues with the American church, but okay. So here comes number two. Now remember, this is their suggestions. We're taking each one. Do, I think we can agree with the first one. Does everybody think we can agree with the first one? All right, now here's the second one. The very details of the tabernacle teaches us that God wants us to meditate on it and learn from all of its facets, all the different facets of it. All right, all the different facts of it, all the different elements of it, that, that this shows that he wants us to learn all of it. Now, that's a big claim, right? That I don't know if that's telling us, showing us how important it is, but that it says the very details of the tabernacle teach us that God wants us to meditate on it and learn from it and all of it and, and every element of it. It is very detailed. It's very detailed. So I'm going to say this. I'm going to reword this a little bit. First, that just the fact of how much space it covers shows it's important. I'm going to say second, the amount of detail given to it shows it's important. I don't know. And I think, I think it would be fair to say if God's given us that many details, then what, what should that lead to? If God's given us that much detail, I think we can agree that it seems to indicate that he'd want us to do what? Study it, know it. And if it's that detail, it's going to take a little bit more than just a surface level. We're going to have to know every bit of those details, right? Every, every, every facet to it, every, every element of it, every detail. And so that we were going to have to meditate on it because those details, what do you do with it, right? When you just read a detail, you can just write the detail down, but that doesn't do much for you, right? So then you would think, if it's that detailed, you got to do something with it. So I, I will argue that the details seem to show that it's important and seems to indicate, as they say, that God would want us to meditate on it. We run into, where, where's another situation where we run into a similar problem? It's the end of Ezekiel. Right? How many, everybody grab your Bible, look at the end of Ezekiel and see how many chapters are dedicated to the, tab, to the uh, temple. Look at how many. Yeah, well, we don't, yeah, whichever temple it's referring to. How many chapters are dedicated to that temple in the book of Ezekiel? You know it's not 37, 38, and 39, so you can start in 40. 42, eight chapters to one temple. Is it detailed? Oh, it is so detailed. Now, once again, what would that seem to indicate? Not only is it important, but it would seem to indicate that God wants you to understand the details. <laughs> Good point. He wanted someone to know the details. Yeah, we could make an argument there. But so you know, we could make the same argument about the tabernacle, right? 
could make the same argument about the tabernacle. Maybe these details were for them and not so much for us. I mean, that's a good point. I know, I know if you say that in many churches right now, people would be getting mad at you and be ready to throw things at you. But they'd be like, how dare you say that? But I mean, the point is, I don't know. What, I mean, you know what the church does with the details. We got to make it all represent this and represent this and represent this and represent this. But I will argue at least the space and the details seems to indicate that as a Bible reader and, and student, that I should at least take my time with it. Now, they make some claims here. And let's just, uh, we'll consider this really quick before we move on to the next point. This is about all the details. And they're going to start mentioning typology here. Now listen, they say an Old Testament type is not the same as a biblical parable. Now let's stop right there. What is the difference between a type and a parable? Now I know this is not, uh, this doesn't seem to fit their point, but they're going to, they're going to, they're using this point because the tabernacle gives us all these minute details and they're saying that shows me why it's important and we should meditate on every detail. So to, to explain this, it's going to bring up the issue of a parable and a type. What's the difference between a parable and a type? Okay. So for those online who did not hear, someone just said a type has an antitype. And usually the antitype is found in the New Testament and typically it points to Christ. All right. Okay. What, what's that? How does that make a difference than a parable? Okay, so you're saying types tend to have one major subject and a parable has different subjects. Is that your argument? Okay, right. But I'm, willing to, I'm willing to listen to your, your, your arguments here. What else do you, what, anybody else have any other thing about what makes the difference between a type and a parable? Okay, so a parable takes what we know to try to point to something we don't know. What does a type do? Does it not take what we know? Okay. Possibly, all right. Any other suggestions? Okay, I mean, these are good suggestions. All right, this book is going to offer just one major distinction, all right? Uh, well, I was going to say grab a Bible dictionary and just look really quick, but we may do that here in a minute. Let, here is what they're going to claim. Everybody ready? All right. An Old Testament type is not the same as a biblical parable. So they're making an argument the two are distinct. I think almost everyone in hermeneutics would claim that they're different. Here is their argument. You ready? A parable has... Anybody know? A parable has one of something. Parable has one of something, or a type doesn't. What is the a parable only offers one thing, one lesson. The details, the details are given in support to that one lesson. And they say, for example, go to Luke eighteen. Go to Luke eighteen really fast. Go to Luke eighteen. Go to Luke 18 really fast. I know this may not seem like it's related, but it is related. I think it is related. Or put it this way, even if you don't think it's related, it's, it's important to at least figure this out from a hermeneutical standpoint. Luke 18, starting in verse 1. 
Tell me what you see in Luke 18.1. Spake a parable. Keep going. Okay. Yeah, the one lesson is stated in verse 1. What's the lesson? That man ought always to pray and not to faint, right? Okay, All, the details of the parable are there only to support that lesson. There you go. That, that's the idea of a parable. All the details in a parable point to the one. Remember, that's what I always uh, warn you about parables, is that what t- people have a tendency to do is they get to the parables and they start doing what? This represents this, this represents this, this represents this, this represents this. And then typically, the next thing you know, the parables are who knows where you are, right? You don't know what's going on, right? Or all those details start contradicting your own theology. What you have to do is figure out, watch the one lesson, and then every detail, does every detail have to be perfect? And No, because they, the detail's just there to support the one lesson, That's what a parable does. You figure out the one lesson. I know in preaching it's much more fun to go, look everyone, in this parable we have this. What does this represent? And we almost treat the parable like we're doing typology. They're different. Most people argue they're different. So everybody got that? Right now, this is what they say about typology. Typology has multiple lessons. Now, they're going to quote from a book, The History of the Old Testament. You ready? They're going to quote from a book called The History of the Old Testament. We have it upon the highest authority that not only in its grand outlines, but in its smallest details, everything was to be made after the pattern which God showed Moses on the mount. Everyone look at Exodus 25, 9. And tell me if it seems to support the idea that the smallest details was to be made after the pattern which God showed to Moses. Do what? Exodus 25, 9. Tell me what you see when you get there. Let's see if it supports this. So, meaning, the tabernacle was to be made to a very specific pattern that would include all the details, Right? So this is what this book is trying to argue. Now hang on and go to Acts 7.44. Now remember, they're putting forth a hypothesis here so we, we can see whether we agree. What happens in Acts 7.44? Okay, in other words, that Moses was to build it very specifically according to the fashion or the model or the pattern, depending on your translation, how it was made. Everybody see that? Go to Hebrews 8.5. What do you see in Hebrews 8.5? Hebrews 8.5.
Okay, it's a shadow and a copy of what is in heaven. Now, whatever that means, we, we may not completely understand, but once again, what does it seem to, de- to, to indicate? Every detail has to be what? Perfect and exact, right? How about Hebrews 9.23? Right, well, they got to make it exact, right. Hebrews 9.23. The copies of, the copies of, all right? This is, this is very meticulous, very specific, all right? As, as this book, again, it's called the History of the Old Testament states, this, all of these verses teach us that Moses was shown by God an actual pattern or model of all that he was to make uh, in and for the sanctuary. This can only, this convey only one meaning. It taught, now listen, it taught far more than the general truth that the only only that approach to God is lawful or acceptable, which, ha, which he has indicated. For God showed Moses every detail to indicate that every detail had its special meaning and hence could not be altered in any, even the minutest part- particular, without destroying that meaning and losing that significance, which alone made it of importance. Nothing here was intended as a mere ornament or ceremony. All was symbol and type. So they're making an argument because every detail, then they're making an argument, every detail was a type. Therefore, all of it is significant and we then should meditate on every detail. Now that's a big jump. That's a big jump. I don't know if I agree with that. But I will state this. Is it not fascinating that from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it does mention that every detail was, was to be a certain way. Now, that tells me at least, I don't know if that means every detail is a type. I think that's a leap. But it does tell me that every detail what? Is important. And this shows us the importance of the tabernacle. That's what I'm going to take from it. They're trying to jump to every detail then has a type. That, I, 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 yeah, I, I don't even know where you go with that, right? That gets crazy. But we can say this. The amount of space in the Bible, 50 chapters, tells me the tabernacle is. And the fact that every detail had to be made specifically as instructed. And that concept is repeated from Exodus to Acts to Hebrews. Tells me every detail is important. So what should I be willing to do with every detail? And meditate on it, right? Meditate on it. And so the amount of time you dedicate to something typically demonstrates how important something is to you, correct? So we we know God has dedicated the time and space and information, so we know obviously it's important to God. Whether it's important to you, well, you can just look over your Christian life and know how much time you've given to it. That will tell you how important it is to you. Does that make sense? All right. So what's, what's the first thing that tells us the importance of the tabernacle? The amount of space, 50 chapters. Second, the details, the specific details that, it was, that are given and the specific details which was instructed to Moses to build it exactly according, according to those details and that pattern. All right. Number three. 
Oh boy, this one I got problems with. All right, the first two, we were able to make them work, right? Can we all agree that the first two seems to work? Okay, I don't know what to do with the third one. All right, here we go. Everybody ready? I got a problem with this one. Here we go. The tabernacle creates a peerless image in the believer's mind about Christ. The tabernacle creates peerless, I'm sorry, images, plural, I said image, peerless images in the believer's mind about Christ. The reason the tabernacle is so important is it will create a peerless image, multiple images in your mind about Christ. In other words, if you really want to see Christ, what do you study? The tabernacle. Therefore, the tabernacle is important because that's the only way you get a peerless image of Christ. That is a major claim, is it not? That is a major claim. A peerless image. Or images. I keep saying image. They, they want to make sure it's plural. A plurality of images that are peerless comes from the tabernacle. That would make it very important. And if they can prove that, that would make the tabernacle maybe one of the most important things in the Bible. Hey, you want to have a peerless image of Christ or images of Christ? Study the tabernacle. Now, what, what do we want to hear? Their support for such a claim, right? All right, so let's hear what they say. All right, here we go. Once understood, the images, plural, linger in the mind and are brought back repeatedly by the Holy Spirit. Now, that's just making, they're just re, they're doubling down on their imi- original statement. That once you see these images, they will forever stay in your mind, and then the Holy Spirit can recall them. So that you constantly have these images of Christ in your mind. That's, again, that's a gigantic claim. Right? Because, now we could test this, right? The way to test this is you take two people, one person spends two years studying nothing but the tabernacle. Someone else doesn't study the tabernacle. They study the rest of the Bible. And at the end, which one should have a better understanding of Christ? One studying the tabernacle. I don't know if you can prove it that way. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know if you can... Do, I, man, that's a huge claim. That's a huge claim. Wait, let's see if they offer any more information, all right? Now they're going to quote from a different book. They're going to quote from a book called The Law of the Offerings. This is the book they're quoting from, The Law of the Offerings. You ready? This is a long paragraph. This is what they're going to give to support this claim. The types are, in fact a set of pictures or emblems directly from the hand of God by which he would teach his children things otherwise all but incomprehensible. So they're claiming, you see how they're doubling down? God gave all those details, right? And all those details point to whom? Christ. And therefore, if you study the types, You're getting the pictures and the emblems that without those pictures and emblems, it is incomprehensible. So now they're making a very clear dogmatic decision that therefore without studying the tabernacle, these things are incomprehensible to you. So therefore the only way they become comprehensible is you study the tabernacle. Ah, man, I, I can't go with that. I cannot go with that. I cannot go with that. 
Now, maybe by the time we're done studying the tabernacle, we'll be like, hey, remember that third point? We, we now agree with it, right? Because after all of these years as a Christian, for the very first time, I know Christ. Let me, just for a show of hands, be, just be honest. How much time have you dedicated in your Christian life to a systematic study of all 50 chapters regarding the tabernacle? Okay. You've read them, okay. Yeah. Okay. No. So that would, that would mean that you don't really have an understanding of Christ. I... Now, if you want to believe that, that's okay. You can, but I... Yeah. Okay, all right. So, now they're claiming, that, hey, it's the tabernacle where you get these, incompre- these images which gives you an incomprehensible picture of Christ. Of, or you get a, you get, you understand things which were incomprehensible, right? A comprehensible way, right. In the types, if I may be allowed the expression, God takes his son to pieces. In the types, all about Jesus is broken down into small pieces. So therefore you can understand the smallest detail. This is the claim they're making. By them, does he bring within the range of our capacity definite views of the details of Christ's work, which perhaps but for these pictures, we should never fully or at least so fully apprehend. In other words, he breaks it down to these small parts. And without these small parts, you would never truly fully apprehend them. Meaning, if you haven't studied the tabernacle, you don't really have it. That is a massive claim. That'd be all, it'd be awesome if it's true because then you would be like, you know, uh, discipleship 101 would be what? tabernacle. Hey, I just think I'm a Christian. Well, we're going straight to the tabernacle. We're going to spend six months. We're going to spend six years there because this is how you're going to know. If you don't know this, then the truth of Christ is going to be incomprehensible to you. Now, this is, this is, now what we're hearing here, what we're seeing here is so common in preaching. So much of preaching, the introductory sermon to a series or an introductory sermon to a book Always, oh, and I'm just going to say this, it oversells. And why does it have to oversell the series and oversell the book? You got to keep people coming back. This will revolutionize your life. This will change your life. This will fix your marriage. This will fix your kids. This will do this. This will do that. It will give you better teeth, better hair. It will, it will, it will make your life wonderful. Come back. Well, if you oversell everything, at some point the overselling becomes... Meaningless. I think this is a little bit of overselling. Personally. I could be wrong. But I think it's a little bit of overselling. You can tell me, all right? They go on to say, um, it says, the realities which the type represents are in themselves truths and facts, the most elevated facts which have taken place before uh, God himself, facts in which he himself been the actor. These vast and infinite objects he brings close before us in emblems and presents them to our eyes in a series of pictures, 
with the accuracy of one who views those things as they are seen and understood by himself and in a way in which they may be understood by us. All right. I don't know what to do. How, how do we want to define? What, what, number one was it's important because of the space. Number two, it's important because of the details. And number three, they're saying it's important because of what it does. It's going to give us a peerless, gives us peerless images of Christ. You can just put that down and put a question mark next to it. I just question that all day. I, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can buy that. I don't know. Right? Put it this way. Because what we tend to do in this church is we can tend to question everything. We'll wait and see when we're done what we get, right? We'll wait and see. Because I think I could skip the tabernacle and I could go to the Gospel of John starting in chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh. And I think I may get a pretty good idea about Christ before I ever even know the tabernacle existed. Because I studied John chapter 1 before I ever studied the tabernacle. I studied the doctrine of the Trinity way before I ever studied the tabernacle. I studied the deity of Christ way before I ever studied the tabernacle. And if this was the case, the council wouldn't go back to church history, 325 AD. Council of Nicaea, what were they dealing with? No, not Gnosticism. The greatest, one of the greatest heresies in the history of the church. No, 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 no. Come on, Sarah, you want to help him out? Arianism. Okay, did she say it? Or, oh, you can't. Oh, okay. You were just reading her mind. Okay, all right, all right. Sarah got it. All right, Arianism. One of the greatest heresies of the church, which dealt with what? The nature of Christ, right? Well, guess what? Then when we go read the Council of Nicaea, they should have just told everyone, we're in the tabernacle, then you'll have perilous images of Christ and who he is and his work. I don't think they pointed us to the tabernacle, did they? No. I mean, we studied the Council of Nicaea. I don't think we even mentioned the tabernacle in its entire, and all of its... uh, anathemas, and all of the documents from it. So I just don't think that... Do I? I've tried to blow it apart, but, but at the same time, I'm willing to be corrected. So what I'm saying is we're going to put a question mark by it because when we're done, maybe we're all going, whoa. That, remember all that stuff that was incomprehensible? We now comprehend it because we studied the tabernacle, right? So I don't know. All right, let's go to the next one. The next, God's use of illustrations reminds us of their importance. So because God uses illustrations, I guess they're going to make an argument that shows us the importance of the tabernacle. Let's let's read and see how they're going to try to articulate this one. All right, we're going to run out of time. All right, here we go. God has filled the Bible with illustrations. Indeed, God has filled the universe with illustrations of spiritual things. Men need examples and illustrations, and every preacher and teacher must remember this. 
While we, can, uh, while we can and should draw illustrations from everywhere in life, the very best illustrations of spiritual truth are found in God's word. Since the Bible is perfect and it is able to make the man of God perfect, it contains perfect teaching as well as perfect illustrations to support the teaching. So simply put, the Bible is full of illustrations. Therefore, the tabernacle basically is an illustration of greater spiritual truth. Okay, well, call it, to me, if you call it an illustration, is that the same thing as a type? I don't know. I don't know. Are illustrations and the type the same way? That one's really not helpful, but you can just put it down. God uses illustrations, and the tabernacle is important because it serves as a great illustration of spiritual truth. I don't know if I agree with that one, but that, I mean, they don't really give any other explanation to that one. It's almost like they're reaching for that one. I don't know. I think you've already kind of made that point, but okay. All right? All right? Here we go. You ready for the next one? Everybody ready? All right. The tabernacle sheds light on the Gospels, and the Gospels shed light on the tabernacle. Why is the tabernacle important according to them? The tabernacle helps us understand the Gospel, and the Gospel helps us understand the tabernacle. All right. Here's what they say. The teaching of the tabernacle and the teaching of the Gospel fits together in divine perfection giving us an astounding revelation of Christ. For example, consider the offerings presented before God and offered unto God and a burnt and a sweet savor unto God. These depict Christ's relationship with the Father in a most fascinating manner. This gives deeper understanding to New Testament passages such as John chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, of the Father being the eternal Word and dwelling with the Father, and John 1, 18, of Christ being eternally in the bosom of the Father. The aspect of the offering also gives us a deeper understanding of what transpired on the cross when the Son offered Himself as the perfect sacrifice and the Father had to forsake the Son because He was bearing the sins of mankind and the Son cried out in agony, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? A statement so important that it is repeated three times in Scripture. This aspect of the offering also shines on light on the Son's prayer to the Father when He was on earth, just as He had pray- as the prayer of John 17 when Christ spoke of the glory he had with the Father before the world was, in these lessons, we will see how that such things are better understood by the tabernacle. So they're saying the tabernacle is important because it helps us basically understand the gospel, and the gospel helps us understand the tabernacle. That's, that's a big claim. I don't... I, I, See, I would put it, it's important because the tabernacle points us to the gospel. I think it points us to it. I don't know if it helps us understand it, but it points us to it. Maybe, maybe it does help us understand it. I don't know. We'll just put it down. We'll put a question mark next to it. We'll see. The only way we're going to know is what? Study the tabernacle and helps us see if it helps us understand the gospel any better, Right? And then, when, and then when we think about the gospel, does it help us understand the tabernacle? I do believe there is a connection to some level, right? I think the tabernacle does point to the gospel. I think when we understand the gospel, then we better understand the tabernacle. So I do believe there's a correlation somehow. All right? Okay. All right. Here we go. The next one. The believer grows in his comprehension of the lessons of the tabernacle as he grows spiritually in Christ. The tabernacle is important because the believer grows in his comprehension of the lessons of the tabernacle 
as he grows spiritually in Christ. So it seems that these kind of, again, he tries to connect this. If you're growing in Christ, do you understand the tabernacle? So the tabernacle is important because I guess it can kind of be used to measure your spiritual growth. If you can understand the tabernacle, it shows you're growing. That's a big claim. Right? Well, to me, it would just mean you study it. I know, but there, I guess it seems to be, it's almost making this a test. Hey, church, are you growing spiritually? Everybody says, yes. And I'm like, reach underneath your pew, taped to the bottom of the pew is a 30-question test on the tabernacle. If you understand it, you're growing spiritually. If you don't, you're wrong. I, I don't know. I don't think it works that way. Uh, Stephen just it just proves you studied the tabernacle. Right? I, I don't know. Uh, I, sometimes people, we try to make things way too spiritual. It says this. When we, are, when, when, we, when we are baby Christians or carnal and disobedient, our spiritual understanding is weak. So then this, the author gives an illustration. The first time I studied the tabernacle was in Bible college in the mid-70s. As a new Christian, as a new Christian. And though I was impressed with the beauty of the divine illustration, my understanding was very elementary. As I continued to look at the portion of scripture every year as I read through the Bible, I grew a little in my understanding of its lessons. But the next time I gave serious attention to the tabernacle was when I prepared the first edition of a book he wrote called Bible History and Geography in 2002. By then, I had been walking with the Lord and devouring his word for 30 years, and the tabernacle meant more to me. In 2013, when I was 40 years old, uh, and the Lord, I decided to do a much more serious study of the tabernacle, using about 40 different commentaries and books and devoting weeks to the pursuit. And this time, the teaching of the tabernacle opened to my understanding in the most wonderful way and was far more precious than ever before. So, hey, his argument is the more he grew, yeah, this is the guy who wrote the book. The more he grew, the more he understood it. Now, you could argue, I don't know if that, I don't know if that really detects your spiritual growth. That would just detect you've been reading the Bible for 40 years. If you've been reading the, it would, to me, it would just prove knowledge. It wouldn't prove spiritual growth. We always, don't we always want a way to measure spiritual growth? Isn't it just like a built-in to the church? We always want five ways to know that you're spiritually growing. And now the way you're spiritually growing is supposedly the time. I, 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 I reject this. I reject this. I, I, I'm sorry. I, we, we, you, you, can, you can just put an X next to this one. I, I, there's no way I'm going to say your understanding of the tabernacle proves your spiritual growth. It just does not. It does not. My understanding of the tabernacle now has nothing to do with my spiritual growth. It's because I got seven degrees in theology, right? I got degrees in theology, religious education, biblical studies. I mean, come on. It's just because I've studied, studied, studied. It has nothing to do with spiritual growth. I know we, we, love, we love this idea within the church, right? See, if you're living in sin or if you're lost... You can't understand this. Isn't that the Christian worldview? You can't understand the Bible. But when you become a Christian, dun, 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 dun. 
understanding is yours. Well, that's the biggest bunch of garbage I've ever heard. We got 2,000 years of church history. Christians can't agree on anything. So if we've been given supernatural understanding, you think we would stop arguing with one another. But the fact that we can't stop arguing with one another means we don't have any supernatural understanding. And sometimes I can hear an atheist or an agnostic talk about the Bible and they seem to grasp it far better than Christians I talk to. So I think, the, what, I'll go back to Augustine. How do we understand this book? The same way we understand any book. You read it and you work. And if you don't put forth the work, you don't understand it. I don't care if you write it 60 times. You got to do some work. So I disagree. I, I, we're just going to reject that outright. It's not, it doesn't prove my spiritual growth. It proves how much time I've worked on it. My understanding of the Bible can grow irregardless of my spirituality. My spirituality can be tanking. My understanding can be growing. I know if I say that in any church, I'll be absolutely not. If you're not growing in the Lord, God will not help you understand his word. You turn it into something magical, right? Turn it into, like if, I, if I'm a better Christian, then dun, 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 I have better understanding. Well, then obviously no one's a good Christian considering 2,000 years we can't agree on one doctrine. That means God has kept the truth from everyone. But isn't it amazing that we always think our understanding is directly related to our spiritual growth? Can we all agree that that's just nonsense? All right. Then the, uh, there's two more and we'll end. Next, we will continue to learn from the tabernacle. I'm just going to throw that out there. They just say, hey, we, you can learn from the tabernacle. It's important because you can always be learning from the tabernacle. I got no problem with that one. And you know why I know that's true? All scripture is given by divine inspiration and is profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, instruction that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished into every good work. We're always going to be learning from the tabernacle because it's God's word. And we, aren't we always learning from every part of God's word? Yes. So it doesn't make the tabernacle any more important than any other part, but it makes it important because it's God's word and we're always going to learn from it. And now the last one is the one where I just want to just absolutely lose my ever-living mind and start drinking heavily, okay? Here's the next one. You ready? And this is the last one. This is the last one. Oh, man. I'm going to even have a hard time reading this one. I'm just going <coughs> to... It's going to get caught in my throat. <coughs> I'm going to start coughing, all right? The tabernacle is important because it reminds us that God's people needs teachers. <coughs> that is a joke. That is just an absolute joke. Now, I know I'm jaded, but I don't believe any Christian believes they need a teacher. You know why I don't believe that? Because Christians constantly do what to their teachers? Tell them they're wrong. So if you're the one always telling me that you're, or whomever, just forget me. Just I'm, don't even put me in the illustration. We know for two thousand years what have people been doing. It started on October the thirty first, fifteen seventeen. Someone told an entire church that they were wrong, and then Luther told the Anabaptists that they were wrong, and the Anabaptists told Luther 
He was wrong. And then Luther was arguing with this. And then they were, and then Calvin was telling these people they were wrong. Zwingli was telling people these were wrong. And the Puritans were telling people these were wrong. And it went on and 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 on. So why would you say, well, the tabernacle proves we need teachers? Obviously, nobody needs a teacher because everybody thinks they're right. Well, because guess what? You can't really understand it unless you have a teacher. And you know why you can't really understand it? Probably because maybe some stuff will be made up. Here's what they say. Every believer has the indwelling spirit to help him. Now, immediately I already have a problem. If everyone's got the Holy Spirit inside to help him, then you don't need a teacher unless the Holy Spirit's a really bad teacher, right? Okay, all right. But if we could understand everything in the Bible on our own, God would not have given us teachers. Well, that's a good question. If God's given us teachers, maybe because not everyone has the Holy Spirit in there teaching them. That makes sense, right? Okay. But if everyone has the Holy Spirit, but here's what it works. If you believe you have the Holy Spirit in you, and then you hear me say something I don't like, you'll say, the Holy Spirit seemed to convict me that what you're saying is not... Well, then how do I argue that? No, the whole thing is maddening, okay? But then here's what they say. I've been a passionate Bible student since the first day I was converted in the summer of 1973. But the teaching of the tabernacle was largely closed to my mind until I had help from teachers via commentaries, churches, and Bible colleges. Not from the Holy Spirit. No. It, was, it was closed. But then I got the teachers, and now I understand it. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. That would mean you need, if you need teachers, the teachers would have to be authoritative, right? But in the Protestant world, who judges the teachers? The people. So why would you need a teacher if you're the one judging the teacher? Like, nobody in the Protestant church will ever explain this to me. If you're the one judging the teacher, then the, can the teacher have any authority? No, if you're the one judging the teacher... Nobody can explain it. This is, this is where Catholics just mock us all day long because it's the most ridiculous. On one hand, we want to say, oh, we need Bible teachers to teach us because I couldn't understand this until I was taught. Maybe you couldn't understand it because maybe what they're telling you is not there. You ever thought about that? Is that a possibility, Right? Is that a possibility? I mean, it could be a possibility. But I'm just saying, in the Protestant church, we have to at least acknowledge this weird dynamic. On one hand, you're supposed to be judging what is being taught, whether it's true or not true. And if you're the one judging it, well, then who really has the authority in the relationship? The one judging, right? But on the same time, they're like, no, the people, you need preachers and teachers, and they have an authority. But what authority do I have if you're the one who can instantaneously tell me, I'm wrong. Now, can I say you don't have the authority to tell me uh, you're wrong? Now, the minute I tell you you don't have the authority to tell me I'm wrong, then means my teaching has authority, and then you have to submit to it. But we know that that doesn't work in the Protestant church. So then you can just get up and go somewhere. Like, the whole system is broken. I can't stand anything that says you need teachers, because you don't need teachers. Because you can, you are, you're the one supposed to be judging me. It's the weirdest thing in the Protestant world that we have a system that says someone without Bible college, without seminary, without ever reading a book on anything, can tell the preacher who's supposed to go to Bible college and seminary that he's wrong. Then what's the point of Bible college and seminary? 
It's the most useless waste of money in the history of mankind. They say, no, 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 no. The preacher has authority. Do I? Because if I do, then no one should be able to do what? To challenge you. But that's not the way it works. So he can say that the tabernacle, what his argument is, the tabernacle is so complicated and so difficult that you can't understand it apart from teacher. But if you can't understand it apart from a teacher, then what else can you not understand apart from a teacher? And if you can't understand it apart from the teacher, then how can you ever question or judge the teacher? Sometimes I don't think the Protestant world ever thinks this through. Because this is, I mean, is not, this is not always the Catholic argument. Is, I mean, Sarah can verify this. This is the never-ending argument on Catholic radio. It's like, well, who says you're right? I mean, anybody, like, everybody just thinks they're right. I can stand up here and preach something, and in five seconds you can tell me, I don't, I don't agree, I don't agree, I don't agree. Because that's how we believe it works in the Protestant world. And the Catholic world, they'd be like, no, who has the authority to interpret it? The magisterium of the church. And that, magis- that, uh, that interpretation is authoritative. So, I would, I, would I, I mean, look, here's what, you tell me. When, I, do, can we agree that because of the mere, the fact that there's 50 chapters and there's all these details, that the tabernacle, at least to some level, is somewhat hard to understand? Okay, now, you could say, well, that proves you need a teacher. But if it proves to need a teacher, then I could argue, then what else do you need a teacher for? And if you need a teacher, then the teacher then would have, by definition, have to have some authority to tell you this is what it means, and you could not argue against it. So I don't know how that works. I don't know. How, you can do whatever you want. I'm so jaded at this point in my Christian life, I don't even, I don't, I don't even know why there's teachers. I don't even know why the church exists. I'm from, I'm, I'm, if I'm just being, from a jaded perspective, I know I shouldn't say that, but I just sometimes don't understand because it's like everyone just does what they want anyway, so what's the point? Like, I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand. And, and I've listened to people try to tell me, no, 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 no. I believe the pastor has authority until... Until you disagree, <laughs> exactly. So then the whole thing is useless. So I don't know. I will say this. The tabernacle demonstrates the importance of study. Do you think that's a fair way to put it? Are you going to be able to understand that just reading it? No. It's going to require some work. So that doesn't really prove the importance of Maybe, Maybe the fact that the tabernacle requires great study shows us the importance of the tabernacle. Is that a way to word it? The tabernacle demonstrates the importance of study, which demonstrates the importance of the tabernacle because it probably will require a little bit more work to understand that than to some things, right? I mean, I can understand pretty simple, don't bear false witness. That makes sense. I don't know if I can understand 50 chapters of instructions about how to build a tent. That requires a little bit more work, meaning that shows the importance of the tabernacle because it may require a little bit more work in which to understand it. Is that a better way to put it? All right, there you have it. Okay, I just wanted, I, I'm sorry to go a little long, but I wanted to finish that because if I was left with one thing, how do we then make that part two, right? Part two, we have one thing to cover, right? So, all right. I mean, I probably still could have made it work. I, I probably could have, but 
it's, we, can, we can advance. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, we know that you've put the tabernacle in your word. We know great amount of time and details are dedicated to it. Help us understand the importance of it, not by overselling it, hyping it, or exaggerating it, but help us just know because it's there, we need to dedicate ourselves to understanding it. And I believe that we can, if we're honest, see that there's some great difficulty ahead and trying to figure it out. Let that humble us. Let us work together to do our best to understand it correctly and forgive us in all the different ways we have misinterpreted it in the past and all the ways we will misinterpret it in the future. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen.